0: Hey, okay. Hi. So this morning we're in Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. So if you're able, please stand and join me as we read God's word. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. This is the word of the Lord.
1: sick to be honest. So uh, I am thrilled to be with you this morning. I hope you're enjoying your Lord's Day already. Um, but this morning as we have been, we're going to be taking up again um, the book of Galatians as we wrap up the final portion of our vision series. Um, go, we, have, we have addressed the the going portion, that we are called to be a going people, we have addressed the gathering portion, that we are called to be a gathering people, now we're addressing the teaching portion, that we will teach through God's word, and sort of modeling it by teaching through the book of Galatians. So, up until this point, I don't know what it feels like to you, but we've been spending a lot of time on the doctrine of justification by faith, right? Right? Um, Primarily because that is largely what Galatians addresses, is this doctrine. That is the core of the book. And certainly the last two weeks, the chapter 3, it is essentially the only thing that Paul is focusing on in the text. It may feel like to you that we're sort of semi-rehashing the same things week in, week out, saying it a different way. And that might feel puzzling to you as far as why we're doing that. Well, the reason why we're doing that is because that it, it seems that the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, was intentionally doing that to the Galatian people and then to us, so that we would continually see different aspects of this doctrine, so that we would continually see different elements involved with it and different applications of it. It's a bit like jewelry. If you've seen... If you have uh, any rings with jewelry or earrings, necklaces, if you have any types of jewelry, sometimes watches with precious stones in them, you know that if you look at it one way, you see, the beauty of, you see the beauty of it, but if you turn it a slightly different way in the light, you see different facets. You see different aspects. In the case of diamonds, they call that fire, right? The, the fire shows itself in different ways as you turn the facets to the light. And I think that what's happening is, is this is working the same way, that we are seeing different aspects of the beauty because Paul, the Holy Spirit through Paul, excuse me, is holding out this, this promise of justification by faith. And he's wanting the Galatian people and and by extension through time, us, to see the beauty of justification by faith in Christ alone so that we will continually see oh wow it's that oh and it's that oh and it's that oh and it's that the ultimate reason so that the last verse that we read will not be true of us so that the labor that has been made will not be in vain that it will not be wasted so this morning that's that's why the title we talked last week about the inheritance that we received Um, The promise of the coming inheritance, Scott talked about, understand and then don't waste the inheritance that has been given to us. Now, when we started a couple of weeks ago in chapter three, Chris went through and talked about the, the beginning layers that no one is justified by the law. Everyone is always justified by faith. He goes back to Abraham and says, Abraham was justified by faith. And and then by extension, other faithful Israelites, other Hebrews through the centuries. And then not not only the Jewish people were justified by faith, but also the Gentiles, the Galatians themselves who received it, have received the message by faith and been justified by it. Last week, Scott focused on on the way that not only are we justified by faith, but that this was always the plan. This was always the thing that, first of all, there was the, the priority of promise, that the promise was always justification by faith because before the law came, there was the promise to Abraham. And then not only that, but the law itself was pointing us to the promise because nobody can keep the law perfectly. So we needed the promise of justification by faith. And that then there is a promise that those who are justified by faith receive an inheritance from God as children. Now we're going to turn our attention to what that inheritance means, what it means to become children of God. There is still sort of a, a layering-on effect, though. So I understand it's a little—it's a little puzzling that he's going to keep using similar language to the previous text. He uses the the, the language of slavery, of sonship, and of um, and also of the the caretakers, the guardians, but he uses it in slightly different ways than in the last section of the text. So first, let's look at how we are or how we have been awaiting the promised inheritance. In, the first, three, in the, the first three verses of chapter four, he says, I mean this, that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. So, he's already talked about the fact of the, the difference, the law being used as something that we are enslaved to and also something that we are guarded by. And he uses some of that same imagery again, but in this case, it's primarily talking about our role, that we are, we are destined, those who, of us who come to faith in Jesus Christ, that we are destined to be heirs of God, and yet, before we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we are not yet heirs. We are just, in this case, like children. And children, as he points out, are similar to slaves. Kids, do you ever feel like you are a slave to your parents, that you just have to do whatever they say, you never get to make any decisions on your own, all you, have, all you can do is just what you are told? Right. Well, there's a reason for that. In fact, the, the Bible says, the Holy Spirit says, that's because in some ways, you are. That's not a mean thing. It's simply saying that as children, there is an aspect to where your life is similar to that of a servant, of a slave. The, but what it uses here is interesting. We're going to do a little bit of Greek study this morning, so bear, so bear with me. I hope you'll enjoy it. So when he says that a child... While he is before he is of age, is like a slave, even though he is a master of everything. There's two words there. The Greek uses the word doulos, which is, which is the classic term for servant or slave. It also uses the word kurios, which is the the consistent word for master, owner, lord. Now, this stands out one because kurios is oftentimes in other circumstances the term that's used for for Christ, that he is the master of everything, that he is the Lord of everything. It's not the same one that we use when we're talking about Yahweh, when we're talking about the Lord, all caps, but it is frequently used of him. It is is a term of ownership and authority. There's no question. In the original Greek, though, those two words, doulos and kurios, are right next to each other. We have the English gap between the two because they're they're trying to give us English phrasing, But in Greek, they are exactly next to each other because it is supposed to stand that you are both a slave and a master. It stands out with such seeming contradiction. So maybe a better way to read it in English might be, uh, (coughs) excuse me, that is no different from a slave, owner or master, though he is. Does that make sense? As far as the Greek goes, they would be together in that in that kind of a form. So it's supposed to stand out to us. And the reason for that is because there's time involved. There is a process involved. He uses in chapter three, he uses the law as a guardian as an overseer. He also uses the law as a guardian, as an overseer here in chapter four, but he uses it in, with slightly different language to, to denote different things. In chapter three, we use the, we use the term uh, pedagogos, from which we get pedagogy, teaching, all things related to the process of education. So the law is to be our educators, to be our trainer. It teaches us the truth of morality, it teaches us the truth of who God is and our responsibility to him. Ultimately, it teaches us our failure to meet his standard because we are sinful creatures and in need of a savior. In chapter 4, he uses two other terms. The times when it talks about guardians and managers, he uses epitropos or oikonomos. Those two things have a different connotation. They are used to describe Things like household managers, caretakers, uh, account managers in a business setting. So their purpose is to shepherd and steward the the inheritance, to shepherd and steward the property, the money, all the things that belong to the family as a whole. And their their purpose is to hold on to those things and take care of those things until the time when a child is of age. In Greco-Roman society, there wasn't a fixed date for that. It could be somewhere between, a lot of times they say that at that point in time, it went between 20 and 25 years, but ultimately what would happen is that those who were in charge of the child determined they had gained maturity enough to where they weren't going to waste the inheritance that they were being given, and then they put them in charge over those things. But prior to that, those caretakers, those managers, their job was to teach life lessons. Kids, that's what your parents are doing. When you feel like a slave, what's actually happening is they're teaching you how to treat other people. They're teaching you how to work hard. They're teaching you how to understand the value of those things so that someday they are preparing you for someday when you reach adulthood, that they will be able to entrust you to do those things on your own, to receive those things on your own. In the same way, what we're being what's being described to us is that the child is both servant and master, but he doesn't get to receive the rights of a master until he reaches a point, until he transitions to a point of maturity where he is able to move on to that step and take responsibility for himself. In the passage, it says. Up until that point, he is enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. That's actually a term that gets used a lot um, extra biblically. And it's interesting because it became an idiom. The the phrase um, became an idiom for all types of rote memorization, basic education. So the simple things like ABCs might be another way we could use it. um, Or ABCs, one, two, threes, basic math, basic language skills. Wrote memorization items. This is what Paul says the law is like. We are enslaved to these basic elements. The law is like that where it gives us basic truth. All you can do is, all right, do this, do this, do this, do this. Sounds a lot like the Ten Commandments, doesn't it? There is a rigidity to it. And yet, what is coming is a time when we reach a certain point and are given something new. We reach... By the, by the illustration here, the age of majority where we are able to receive and enjoy the blessings of our inheritance without need of a rigid law in this way. How does that happen? Well, next step is we actually see how we receive the process, the, the inheritance. He goes through that process in verses 4. 7. It says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive sonship, or sorry, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So he's described what it's like when you are a child before you reach that point where you become a full adult and therefore an heir. Now he describes how that process takes place in, in the matter of Christianity. And this is really a microcosm of the gospel message itself. It's it's a tiny little gospel capsule that gives you everything that you need to know in just a couple of verses. But it is interesting that he uses the phrase at the start of it, the fullness of time. Think about it. He's, he's talked about the transition from a child to an adult. Before that in chapter 3, he's talked about the promise that was given centuries ago to Abraham. There is a, there is a shepherding aspect in this that God is saying there is a time process to when this happens for us. I think the reason for that is it helps us to understand that for us, the process of time is all the time in your life from when you are born, the way God interacts with you until someday, somewhere down the line, the gospel grabs your attention and reaches you in such a way that God opens your eyes and you can see the truth of it and you ask to be redeemed through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That is... That is how it works. It is not an instantaneous thing. It has been centuries in the making, and it's years in the making for us. And yet, that's the moment where we receive the inheritance. And the gospel capsule looks like this in verses 4 and 5. He said, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Like I said, that tells you everything that is necessary for the gospel. He sent forth his son. God sent forth his son. That establishes Jesus' divinity, right? That he is not somebody who existed the moment that he was born or the moment that he was conceived. Instead, he was pre-existing before the fullness of time. And when the fullness of time came, God sent him. He was born of a woman, appearing, establishes his humanity, that he came from a woman. So he wasn't just God appearing on earth. He wasn't just God appearing as a man. No, he was conceived, went to term roughly nine months afterwards. His mom went through all the normal pregnancy things. His body grew in the normal pregnancy fashion, and then he was born of a woman his humanity is without doubt he was flesh and blood as we are born under the law so because he was born into a jewish family he had god's law it was established that he was required to keep all of god's law that had been given through moses so as as a man born he has to keep the law to be righteous in the eyes of god as the son of god he is fully capable of doing that and is the only person fully capable of doing that. Born to redeem those who are under the law. So because he is man, he can keep it, or, or he is able to keep it and establish human righteousness. Because he is God, he is capable of actually accomplishing it. But then, because he is God and man, he is able to die as a sacrifice, as a righteous sacrifice, not deserving death himself, but instead dying for someone else. As a man, he can do that. As God, his blood, his death is infinitely valuable just as God himself is an infinite being. It is infinitely valuable and therefore can cover not just his, not just one person's sin, but a host of other people so that all who trust in him can be redeemed. And through that, making us children of God. The word there is sons. I hope I don't need to say it, but I also don't want to neglect the fact that sons and daughters, right? That is a that is a masculine, universal noun. They're using sons to reflect all humanity, uh, all, all types of people. So men and women both, to make us sons and daughters, and with that, heirs. There's a couple of things in my study that, jumped out at me as far as ways this, this satisfies and fulfills the ancient desires that God had set. One of them is found in Deuteronomy uh, chapter five and verse 29. I want you to hear this. This is, so Deuteronomy is, is the book that is referred to as second law, right? So it is It is after Leviticus. It is a recapitulation of God giving the law to his people. But he says this fairly early in the book. Oh, that they had such a mind as this always to fear me and to keep all my commandments that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. God's desire is for people to want to obey him to want to love him, to want to serve him. And then in Jeremiah chapter 31, a passage that's later reflected in the writer to the Hebrews saying that this has been fulfilled through Jesus Christ. Jeremiah 31, 31, he says, behold, the days are coming declares the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah saying know the lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the lord for i will forgive their iniquity and i will remember their sins no more that just that passage stood out as oh my word this is exactly what it's talking about this is this is the promise that that paul is saying has been fulfilled in christ that we are now as we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we are made sons and daughters. And with that, full heirs. Now that that has happened, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. God promises the inheritance is finally arrived at the time that we accept Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on our behalf because the Holy Spirit is present with us. That is the biggest part of the inheritance as children of God is we are no longer separated from him through our sin. Now we are we have access to him and specifically God is with us. The Holy Spirit indwells us. That is the one who then gives us a means of obeying him without rigid adherence to an external law. We now have a law that is within our hearts and that continues to to shepherd us as we grow through the knowledge of the word. We have his we have presence to, and access to him where we can go and use that intimate term Abba which is the equivalent of saying daddy that we have we have access at any time, any place, just like a little child, to come and talk to him, to speak with him, to interact with him in a way that nobody ever did prior to Christ coming. Now, with all that in mind, Paul turns his attention to saying, now, given what Jesus has accomplished for you, Galatians, and then given what Jesus has accomplished for you, remedy, is that? really something you want to leave and return to what you had before, to return to the bondage that you have before? So he's, he says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those by nature, who by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. So he calls out to the fact that the Galatians are returning, actually, even though the Judaizers have come in and they've said, you don't just need faith in Christ. That's good, but you need faith in Christ plus acceptance of the Jewish law, especially circumcision. And, And Paul is saying, guys, you... You were saved out of dead religion before. You were redeemed from dead religion. You know what dead religious ritual looks like because you serve presumably something within the Greco-Roman pantheon of gods. They they had they had plenty of gods. They had a multitude of gods that were worshipped. But as he says, they were no, they were not actually gods at all by nature. They were things made of human hands and Continued on by human will, not by actual life that they have, and they they knew what all of those things were like. The if you worshipped Artemis in Greek in Greek culture, or Diana um, in Roman culture, you had rituals that you had to adhere to. You had feasts you had to go to. You had a temple where you, where you could worship and where you could donate to. You had oracles, kind of like the Jews had the the Urim and the Thummim um, or casting lots at certain times to to divine the will of God. They had oracles that they could go to to try and discern the will of God in a certain circumstance. They had all of those things. They knew about all of those things. And when they came to Christ, they had realized those things were empty. And so Paul is saying, you had those. Why would you go back to that Why would you enslave yourselves, establish Christ has fulfilled the law, Christ has satisfied the law, the law is no longer necessary. At this point, the the Mosaic law that was given is now empty and vain if you think this is somehow going to justify you. So why go back to what you already decided was broken and empty? And the same thing is true for us. Why on earth would anybody ever go back? I don't know what you guys have in your past experience, but my first job—I worked at a uh, at a grocery store for a few years when I was when I was a teenager. Uh, maybe you had some sort of entry-level job like that. Maybe you've ground on even much longer than that in kind of what we might call a dead-end job. But you know what more of a menial-type job looks like. Can you imagine? being gifted or winning somehow a 100 million dollars and you have all of that wealth that has totally transformed your life and then going i think i'm going to go back to work Uh, even if you enjoy your job now wouldn't you want like at that point you have the luxury of of picking up a job looking for a job or a service if you want to start volunteering that totally fulfill, like, just meets the kind of person that you are. You can do anything you want at that point. Why would you go back to something that, that you just had to grind on with? It makes no sense. And that's, that is exactly what Paul is saying. Kids, I want to be very careful because I don't use this term lightly. And, and I know we teach you not to use the word not to throw around the word stupid a lot right but Paul is saying look if you were to want to go back to that that is stupid that is idiotic that is the that is the height of foolishness I mean earlier in earlier in in the book he has already said how are you like are you so foolish that you think this is this is a benefit to you And then later on, how, again, are you so foolish? I heard one pastor say that Paul's counseling method, at least with the Galatians, seems to be, look, you're being an idiot, and I need you to stop being an idiot, okay? This is not going to be good for you. I want good things for you. So in order for that to happen, you have to stop being an idiot. Uh, It makes no sense to go back to law-keeping as a way of restoring us because it doesn't. And it makes no sense to act as though somehow we still need that after we have been justified by the blood of Jesus Christ. So this morning, as, as we wrap up, I wanna actually steal something that Scott did last week. Because um, he, he mentioned his application, a couple of different things. One is he said, he asked, are you a believer? Are you actually already in Christ? And that is the most important question. So for those of you who are still wrestling with it, have you recognized that Jesus is the answer to your needs, that Jesus is the answer to your sin problem? And will you put your faith in forgiveness through his blood, through his shed blood for you as the means of reconciling you to God? Maybe you have already put your faith in it, but you're being enticed by by those who are giving false gospels. I can think of a couple that, you know, periodically show up to your house. I mean that any of you are, but if you are, recommit yourself, put your trust in Christ alone, and don't give place to these other ideas. But then lastly, he mentioned, what if you have put your trust in Christ and you you would never say this is you, but you behave as though you are a functional law keeper. By the way, I really like that, Scott. Um, as a functional law keeper, as though you live as though that's what you were trying to do. And I want to expand on that this morning. Not just are you, but in three specific ways. If you, so this morning, if you look back over the last couple of weeks or months, whatever, if you look back over your life and you say, is, is your spiritual passion, fire, fire, love for God, view of yourself, is that based on what Christ has done or is that, can you look at those last weeks or months or whatever and say, yeah, how I've looked at things has really basically been more about how I did, how I thought I was obeying, not obeying, rather than primarily what what Christ was doing. Do you find yourself running away from God because you are embarrassed at the sin you have been doing? Do you find yourself running to God because you know that, or in your mind anyway, you have done really well. And so you're proud of yourself and you feel worthy to enter his presence. Another way that it might, it might work is when you look at your brothers and sisters in this room and without it as well, do you look at them based on what you perceive as their performance or, or their how they have established their merit and how you look at them how you treat them um, I mean just just to put a, a fine point on it you know in the last couple of in the last couple of months like we've had some some pretty contentious and, and debated issues here within the church when you look at your brothers and sisters do you look at them primarily in light of the positions that they have taken or in light of of the God who has has given himself for them and their acceptance of that? And then finally, are you looking at other people who have wronged you and looking at your willingness to forgive them based on their merit or based on that of Jesus Christ? So Those are three things that I would ask you to consider. Search your hearts and decide what the Lord is speaking to you if he is, and honestly, this morning, if you are reveling in what Jesus Christ has done for you and saying, I, I'm amazed, I'm overwhelmed, I'm overjoyed, and I don't know what to do with it all, tell us. Grab somebody else, grab somebody else in this room, grab somebody else outside of this room and just share what God has done for you and the way he's teaching you, the way you love his presence, the way you love what you have received from him and share it. This morning, I just want to pray with us really quickly and then we're going to switch over to time of, of the Lord's Supper. Father, it is mind-boggling that you would call me a friend, much less a child. I am so grateful that you sent Jesus to be my righteousness and the righteousness available to everyone who is in this room. And I pray that you would, even as, as we prayed for the people of Tajikistan, that you would root us so deeply in Christ as what we need, that we would run to him. For those who haven't trusted him yet for salvation, that they would run to him for their salvation. And for those who already have trusted him, then we pray that, that all of us, that we would run to Christ for continual strength, for continual learning, for continual means of, of pouring out our love back. That we're not, we're not serving you to keep the law, we're serving you because of what you've done for us. We're serving you because of how we love you. And so then it gives us, it is a means of our, our relationship together and it brings life and joy rather than emptiness and death. God, it is so easy for us to try and smuggle back our righteousness into it to try and start doing things that let us seemingly let us seemingly self-atone so that then we can be proud of what we have done forgive us and help us to just let it go to let go the illusion of being sufficient for you and instead accept the joy of being your children called by you because of the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. We ask that you would continually teach that to our hearts in Jesus' name and for the glory of the triune God. Amen.